Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 17, Isabella of France, the fairest and noblest of them all. After a lot of very obscure, though very worthy, queens, we are now back to someone a little better known, Isabella of France. Like Eleanor of Aquitaine, she is someone who has appeared in multiple guises on stage and screen, but is best known in two particular adaptations. In Christopher Marlowe's Edward II, she is portrayed as a complex character, at first loyal to her husband, but then the evil and conniving accomplice of Mortimer, later in the play. In Mel Gibson's Oscar-winning bulldozer of history Braveheart, she's portrayed by Sophie Marceau as a clever yet doe-eyed French princess, put off by the gayness of her husband and brutishness of her father-in-law into the arms of the brave and heroic Scot, William Wallace. The place of Isabella in the popular imagination is generally more of the Marlowe type, with the sympathetic though wildly inaccurate portrayal given in Braveheart being a far more revisionist interpretation. Yet neither of these truly get to the heart of what made Isabella such an interesting woman. This is because both Marlowe and Gibson, along with Legion other writers who use her in their stories, never fail to show Isabella as being anything other than a pawn in the games of others, be it Mortimer, Edward I, or William Wallace. In these stories, she needs men to show her the way. In reality, though, it was she that guided the men in her life to do her bidding. Now, covering Isabella is going to be a little bit different from previous episodes, as it will not be as sharply focused on her as I would have liked, as the context is so important that I have to tell a lot of the background narrative. It is impossible to tell her story without going into the great political and military turmoil in which she acted. If you're interested in such things, then this is your lucky day. If not, then I hope you bear with me. As might be expected, the story of Isabella is going to take more than one episode, so I'm currently planning on splitting her story into three parts, with this first one taking us up until the defeat of Lancaster, the second will take in the total breakdown of her relationship with Edward and her rebellion against him, 
and the last dealing with the overthrow of Edward and its aftermath. It's going to be a wild ride of gossip, war, sex, and not a little childish name-calling. So, are you ready? Okay, here we go. Isabella of France has a claim to be the most noble queen we have yet seen so far. Her father was the King of France, the most noble royal house outside of Germany. Her mother was the regnant Queen of Navarre. This made her the only queen of medieval England to be the child of two reigning monarchs, a feat not to be replicated until Catherine of Aragon became Henry VIII's first wife two centuries later. She had been betrothed to the future Edward II since her infancy, and it's a good thing that Edward I got the deal locked down early, because it was clear, even from her childhood, that she was the hottest prospect in the international marriage market. Not only did she come from ideal marriage stock, but she was also a great beauty. Indeed, until she started getting known by some pretty nasty names later in her life, she was known as Isabella the Fair. Her betrothal to Edward finally led to marriage in 1308. After his father died, Edward decided to go to France, accompanied by his stepmother Margaret, and bring her back to England himself. Indeed, he delayed his coronation to do this, so keen was he to start his reign with his long-awaited marriage. Isabella had just reached the legal marriage age of 12, and so perhaps he was keen to make sure that her father's head was not turned by another offer from a different foreign prince. King Philip was keen to make sure that his daughter was not shown up when meeting her new husband, and so when the English party met the French royal court at Boulogne, she turned up with a wardrobe that included, amongst other things, 72 headdresses, two magnificent gold crowns, gowns made of silk, velvet and taffeta, and apparently nearly 500 yards worth of linen. This was a blue ribbon marriage. France wanted to show that England had scored big with the young Isabella. The two were married in Boulogne on the 25th of January 1308, and after eight days of banquets and tournaments accompanied by two of Isabella's uncles, the Counts Evreux and Valois, the royal party headed back to England. The young queen must have felt giddy with excitement as she crossed the channel, but trouble was on the horizon, and its name was Piers Gaveston. Now I talked a little bit about Gaveston in the last full episode of the show, but since that was a little while ago now, let me remind you about him. He was the son of a Gascon noble, and had caught the eye of Edward I while on campaign in Wales. The old king saw him as a good role model for his recalcitrant son, but actually he was just a terrible influence, dominating the young prince and talking him into making some pretty crappy decisions, including insulting his father's chief minister. Gaveston had been sent away by the king, but the prince pleaded with his stepmother Margaret to intervene, and she persuaded her husband to recall Gaveston. Now, of course, with the old king dead, Gaveston was restored to a position of great prominence, and this was made very clear to the young queen and her family on their arrival in England. Now, apologies if this reference is only relevant to British people, but if you recall the ending to the film Love Actually, then you'll remember that it ends with Martine McCutcheon, who plays Natalie, running and jumping onto her boyfriend, the Prime Minister, as he arrives back at Heathrow. If not, I've put a link in the show notes so you can get a good idea. Anyway, that sort of thing would be deeply frowned upon in real life. This is not how leaders are supposed to behave. Some gravitas, please. Now, this was nothing compared to how Edward greeted Piers Gaveston on his return to England. When he got off the boat, Edward, the King of England and newly married to the noblest, most eligible woman in all Europe, raced to greet Gaveston on the pier. He ran into his arms, quote, giving kisses and repeated embraces. 
Isabella and her uncles must have heard the rumours about Edward and Gaveston before, but if they needed any confirmation of the situation, this was the proof. The party took their time travelling from Dover to London, where preparations were being made for the coronation of England's new king and queen. And guess who was given the role of organising the whole thing, putting himself at the centre of all the action? Yup, it's our good old buddy Piers Gaveston. The ceremony took place at Westminster Abbey. The couple processed in behind a great retinue of nobles, who each dressed in their finest and carried in various regalia that made up a royal coronation. But the last to enter before Edward and Isabella was Gaveston. One chronicler describes Gaveston as being, quote, so decked out that he more resembled the god Mars than an ordinary mortal. But it wasn't just his jewel-encrusted robes that caused muttering. It was the fact that he was wearing purple, the royal colour, reserved only for the king on coronation day. Plus, he had been given the most important thing to carry, the crown of Edward the Confessor, England's saintly king. This was supposed to be the preserve of the highest-born, noblest noble of them all, not some jumped-up Johnny-come-lately. After this came the feast, which, by the way, apparently came late and overcooked, where the king chose not to sit next to his new wife, instead giving the position of prominence to Gaveston. The muttering must have reached a crescendo. Who was the real wife? Isabella or Edward? All of this did not just go away after the wedding. Gaveston's relationship with Edward was causing his popularity with all his subjects to collapse. It wasn't so much the rumours of their sexual relationship that was angering his nobles. While it was hardly encouraged, that sort of thing was tolerated so long as both parties remained discreet and had wives and children too. No, it was the conduct of Gaveston that really riled up England's nobles, not to mention his low birth, though I doubt that even the noblest-born duke would have gotten away with a lot of the stuff that Gaveston did. Now, of course, a lot of this was just arrogance and elitism on the part of the nobility, but Gaveston really did not help matters with his own brash actions. According to the Vita Eduardi Secundi, quote, Piers did not wish to remember that he had once been Piers, the humble esquire, for Piers accounted no one his fellow, no one his peer, save the king alone. Indeed, his countenance exacted greater deference than that of the king. His arrogance was intolerable to the barons and a prime cause of hatred and rancour. As I mentioned in the last episode proper, Isabella's cause was not aided by the fact that her aunt come stepmother-in-law retired from court. She had no real defender there and Gaveston, recognising that she was a very real threat to his position, did his best to sideline Isabella as best he could. This only got the barons madder, and their blame was equally shared between Gaveston and the king. For example, Roger of Reading railed against the, quote, mad folly of the king of England, who was so overcome with his own wickedness and desired for sinful, forbidden sex, that he banished his royal life from his side and rejected her sweet embraces. Adam of Murrimuth went even further, stating that it was common knowledge that the king, quote, loved an evil male sorcerer more than he did his wife, a most handsome lady and a very beautiful woman. Now, of course, this is all rather wildly out of proportion, reflecting the prevailing opinion of the patrons of the chroniclers writing after the time, but this kind of vitriolic criticism of a king is a very serious matter. Do you think that Edward I, Hammer of the Scots, would have attracted this sort of gossip? It was not a good sign. That said, it is not all that surprising that Edward might prefer the company of men his own age than of his wife, who, let's remember, was twelve and quite a bit younger than him. 
While the high court drama played out in the early years of Edward's reign between his lover and his barons, Isabella was very much on the sidelines, but she was still influencing events. For one, she wrote often to her father, the King of France, Philip IV, and he was as concerned as anyone else about the situation, and he added his voices to a very vocal group of English barons who were demanding that Edward banish Gaveston. She allowed herself to be used as a pawn in this high-stakes game of power politics, letting her name be added to the opposition. Edward did make some concessions, though, including increasing Isabella's allowance both in terms of dower lands and hard cash, hoping to smooth things over with his father-in-law. Eventually, though, he too was forced to capitulate, and he stripped Gaveston of his titles and sent him away to Ireland, though not after a passionate final few days with his favourites, and he even travelled to see him off on the boat. The poor guy really was besotted. This year of 1308 really was a dramatic one, but things finally calmed down in the second half of the year. Now that Gaveston had gone, Isabella was elevated to her rightful place at her husband's side, and began to take part in the normal rituals expected of a queen. She began to exercise patronage both in terms of lands and titles. This was where she started to come into her own as a queen. Edward was even getting on better with his barons, who began to think that they had finally gotten the situation under control. The king continued to lavish lands and titles on his wife for many years, knowing that her happiness was the key to maintaining the Anglo-French alliance. But he also had an ulterior motive. He wanted to recall his favourite, and knew that getting his wife on side would help him a great deal. He thought that buttering up his wife would make her father an ally in his quest, but in that he was unsuccessful. Philip hated Gaveston as much as anyone. Edward did, though, find an ally in the Pope, who did intercede on his behalf, and in June of 1309, Gaveston returned from Ireland. The barons weren't exactly thrilled about this, but they did not want to go against his holiness, instead hoped that both Edward and Gaveston had learned their lesson from last time. But, alas, no. Gaveston, instead of being reconciliatory, wanted revenge for his exile, even going so far as giving his opponents nasty nicknames, like Burst Belly, Old Hog, Horse Son, and even Black Dog of Arden. When the Earl of Warwick heard about his nickname, the latter one, he apparently exclaimed, Does he call me a dog? Let him take care, lest I bite. Over the next year or so, opposition to the King and Gaveston grew and grew. Isabella was kept very close by Edward, fearful of what might happen to her if, he f- if she fell into the hands of his enemies. By now, the barons opposed to Gaveston had organised themselves and produced a list of 41 demands called the Ordinances of 1311, which gave them their name, the Ordainers. Now, these ordinances can be compared to the provisions of Oxford or Magna Carta. They were designed to limit the power of the monarchy and adding a degree of oversight ability to the nobility through the institution of Parliament. I've put a link to them in the show notes, but if you don't get round to reading them, just remember that power is a zero-sum game. The ordinances were about seizing some royal power and converting it to baronial power. At this point, Isabella was still very much on Edward's side. She may have hated Gaveston with a passion, but she came from royal stock and was not at all impressed with the impunity with which the ordainers challenged royal authority. She wrote letters to pretty much anyone who would accept them on his behalf, but to no avail. Gaveston was to be exiled again. This time, his exile was even shorter, and he returned after only two months. Edward, knowing what this all meant, abandoned his wife in London and fled with Gaveston to York. This meant civil war with the Ordainers. 
Eventually, Isabella was sent for, and the king raised an army ready for war. Now, Isabella played no role in this war for a very good reason. She was pregnant. This was auspicious timing, as a royal heir would do great things to secure Edwin in his position on the throne, not to mention Isabella's. She therefore retired to Tynemouth Priory near Newcastle. While she did that, the war went very badly for the king, and while he was away in York raising troops, Gaveston was trapped in Scarborough Castle and forced to surrender. The rebellious barons, led by Isabella's uncle, the Duke of Lancaster, convened a kangaroo court and sentenced Gaveston to death. The king's favourite was then stabbed to death before being clumsily beheaded. While the reaction of the barons to the conduct of Gaveston was understandable in the context of the time, this was pretty shabby. Liked or not, Gaveston was a noble, and yet he had been executed in a manner that would embarrass a common criminal. The moral high ground had been lost, and once lost, it could never be regained. In November of that year, in Windsor Castle, the 17-year-old Isabella gave birth to her first child, and to everyone's delight, it was a healthy boy, who they named Edward, the future Edward III. Producing a son gave Isabella a tremendous increase in status. She had accomplished the first duty of a queen. She would go on to have three further children, a spare in 1316 named John, and then two daughters, Eleanor and Joan. All four children survived into adulthood, a minor miracle for the time. There was at least one miscarried child, but considering the appalling luck of previous queens when it came to children dying young, it is good to finally see some royal children surviving. The significance of the birth of Edward was not lost on anyone. The Vita Eduardi Secundi indeed stated that, quote, Our King Edward has now reigned for six full years and has till now achieved nothing praiseworthy or memorable except that by a royal marriage he has raised up for himself a handsome son and heir to the throne. Now, of course, I'm sure Isabella would not have been best pleased to see Edward getting all the credit for the birth of the son when really it was she that did all the really hard work. But it is notable here that she is by proxy getting the credit for the only good thing Edward had yet achieved. I think Helen Castor sums Edward II up perfectly when she says in her book She-Wolves that Edward had, quote, much passion and little judgment, that his understanding of politics was sometimes willfully obtuse, sometimes hopelessly naive. Isabella saw this up close in the Gaveston affair and quickly understood this. Edward is not a hard man to predict, even if sometimes his actions beggar belief in their idiocy. If you read the manual, you could read his every move down to a T. The birth of the son and the death of Gaveston brought both sides to the table. The lead opposition barons, the earls of Warwick, Arundel and Lancaster, signed a treaty of peace and submitted back to the king's rule on the condition that they were not punished. In February 1313, Isabella got a real treat. She and Edward were invited by her father to attend the knighting of her brothers. This allowed her to go back home, see the family, and be entertained in the lavish French style that she must have been sorely missing in dreary old England. Paris was a city in celebration, with days and days of feasting and parties. This was the kind of thing that Isabella had signed up for when she married a king, not years of civil war over one of his favourites. She must have been in her element. It also showed to Edward Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The value of Isabella. She was not just the mother of the heir to his throne. She was the guarantor of friendship between his kingdom and their powerful neighbor, ruled by a descendant of the Emperor Charlemagne. While there, Edward and Philip got down to some serious negotiating. The birth of Edward's son, and thus Philip's grandson, bound the kings together even more so than when Edward had married Isabella, and the importance of Isabella to their relationship is shown by the number of times they mention her in their dispatches. They also lavished her with gifts. She was the glue that held everything together at the moment, and everyone recognised it. The couple returned to England in July 1313, whereupon Edward began preparations for an expedition to Scotland the following year. Isabella here showed some queenly intercessionary skill, acting as a mediator between king and nobility. She was then given what can be considered her first independent assignment. In February 1314, she was sent to Paris again, this time to present the king's case to the Paris Parlement, though the official reason for her trip was given as a pilgrimage across northern France. Her negotiations were successful, and she laid important groundwork for future talks between king and nobility, with the mediator being Philip. But this trip home is not remembered for that. It is known for the Tordenelle scandal. Apologies if I mispronounced that. And settle in for this one, because it is juicy. A scandal that would make Edward's dalliance with Piers Gaveston pale into insignificance. The Tordenelle, or Nell Tower, was a guard tower that made up part of the northern walls of Paris. It had been constructed in the 13th century by Philip Augustus and had been bought by the current king Philip the Fair in 1308. Now, Philip had four children that made it into adulthood. Three sons and, of course, Isabella. Of these three sons, the eldest, Louis, married Margaret, daughter of the Duke of Burgundy. Philip and John married two daughters of the Count of Burgundy, Joan and Blanche, respectively. Now, because they are all such and such of Burgundy, I will just use their first names. Philip seems to have given his daughters-in-law leave to use this tower as they willed, and what they willed was to wine and dine and, to put it bluntly, commit frequent adultery with two literal brother knights, Philip and Gautier Dolnay. Historians are divided about the involvement of Joan, most saying that she was aware of it, but there is disagreement over whether she was involved in the adulterous aspect as well. How long this was going on is unclear, but it was kept top secret. The rituals of courtly love were one thing, but it was completely unacceptable to sleep with the wives of the king's sons. The Dolnays were dicing with death here, 
but they were young and stupid and probably were having the time of their lives. The person who broke the scandal was none other than our very own Isabella. Now, during Edward and Isabella's state visit in 1313, she had grown suspicious of her two sisters-in-law. She noticed that silk purses that she had given them as gifts were now in the hands of two lusty young knights, Philip and Gautier Dolnay. For now, she said nothing, but suffice it to say that her suspicions were piqued. On her return, though, the following year, she decided to inform her father, and after that, things happened very quickly. Margaret and Blanche were both imprisoned, and the brothers Dolnay were executed in the most violent way available to the king for such a crime. So, if you're eating, I'd advise you to pause until your stomach settles. After being brutally tortured, even after confessing to their crimes, they were publicly castrated, with their genitals thrown to dogs to be devoured in front of them. They were then flayed alive with whips, before being broken on the wheel. This involved them being tied to a giant ship's wheel and then being attacked with clubs to be bludgeoned to death. Finally, they were granted the mercy of being beheaded. As the two women, they were not executed, but things were little better for them. They were both forced to wear the uncomfortable head clothes of the penitent and had their hair all shaved off symbolically, and then they were thrown in the dungeon of Gailar Castle. Margaret's marriage to Louis was annulled immediately, but the Pope refused to grant Charles a divorce from Blanche, so they remained technically married. Eventually, after ten years in prison, she was permitted to take the veil. Margaret, though, possibly because of her former husband's succession to the throne, was subjected to a vicious regime of mistreatment, and died two years later. Now, setting aside the vast hypocrisy of punishing these people so viciously for a crime committed by husbands everywhere at the time, It is clear that the entire blame for this cannot just be put at the feet of Isabella, despite what some people have said. She, of course, did not commit these acts or encourage them in any way, but the fact remains that it was she who broke the scandal, and so she was at very least the one who opened the floodgates. Some historians have used this as a sign of her ruthlessness, some others as a sign that she was evil, others as signs of her bravery. It really depends on how you see her as a whole, but yet again we see Isabella in the centre of the action. In just a short visit to France, she had broken a scandal that would help to bring about the destruction of the Capetian dynasty. It would not be the last time that she would help tear down the political order of a kingdom. While all this was going on, in the manner of someone tossing a match into a house filled with gunpowder and then casually walking away, Isabella returned to England in 1314, where Edward was about to attempt to emulate his father and bring Scotland to heel. Robert Bruce was still at large and had been gaining strength taking out English garrisons across Scotland. It was very much long overdue for England to show its northern neighbour who was the real dominant king of the island of Britain. Not present in the army, though, were our old friends the earls of Arundel, Warwick and Lancaster, who knew that an English victory would give Edward the political cover to punish them for the murder of Gaveston. Isabella, following the lead of her predecessors Eleanor of Castile and Margaret of France, accompanied her husband on campaign, stopping off at the border city of Berwick, where she awaited the news of her husband's inevitable triumph. When news came through, however, it was not good. Robert Bruce's outnumbered army had smashed the English force at Bannockburn, just outside Stirling. His chief allies, the earls of Gloucester and Hereford, were respectively dead and in chains, and with it went Edward's hold on power. The significance of the defeat was not lost on the Vita Edwardi Secundi, which lamented, quote, 
Oh, day of vengeance and disaster, day of utter loss and shame, evil and accursed day, not to be reckoned in our calendar. The victorious Bruce then embarked on a ravaging invasion of the unprotected north of England. All of this was accompanied by a winter of savage rain, destroying crops throughout Europe, creating what is known as the Great Famine of 1315-1317. to The only man with the power to stop Bruce was Lancaster, and he was not in the mood to help Edward II out. The schism between king and earl made English government impossible. Through all of this, Isabella maintained her support for her husband. She sat by his side as the English Parliament, led by Lancaster, denounced Edward's renunciation of the ordinances. Indeed, Lancaster went after her specifically, cutting her revenues and forcing her to cut back on her luxuries. As time went on, though, it became clear that Lancaster was fairly isolated. His chief ally, Warwick, died, and Arundel's attempting to run a middle course. Most of all, the English nobility were steadfastly just trying to survive in a kingdom that was careening towards disaster and were not best pleased at Lancaster's obvious intent to humiliate the king at the expense of the kingdom. As I've said before, this was not how statesmen were supposed to behave, and everyone was just getting a little bit sick of his posturing. The Vitriwadi Secundi sums this childishness up thusly, quote, Whatever pleases the Lord King, the Earl's servants try to upset, and whatever pleases the Earl, the King's servants call treachery, and so, at the devil's prompting, the familiars of each start meddling, and their lords, by whom the land ought to be defended, are not allowed to rest in harmony. It is hard to track Isabella through this period, especially as she was in and out of childbirth through most of it, but it does appear that she did attempt to mediate and act as intercessor, but she was dealing with two obstinate bull-headed men, and it would take until 1318 for a deal to be struck. The Treaty of Leek, signed by both Lancaster and the King, signalled, at least briefly, a rapprochement, and the Vita Edwardi Secundi credits none other than Isabella with being a key instigator behind the deal. The following year, an opportunity came for everyone to prove how far they had come. The city of Berwick had finally fallen to the Scots, and so Edward and Lancaster united, mustering their armies at Newcastle in an attempt to stem the Scottish tide. Isabella accompanied the army as far as York, but once again when news came, it was not good. Indeed, she was nearly caught by a marauding raiding party, and was forced herself to flee to the castle of Northampton, with a Scottish force chasing her every mile. Up in the northeast, things weren't going well at all. Lancaster's heart was not in this campaign at all, and eventually he withdrew from the siege of Berwick, causing the army to embarrassingly disintegrate. The English army had once regularly crushed Scottish armies in the field, now it could not even defend its own borders. Edward was forced to sign a two-year truce, which frankly I think was rather generous of Robert Bruce. And then, into this melting pot of simmering disaster, was thrown one last ingredient that would eventually tip everything over. In the Battle of Bannockburn, the powerful and rich Earl of Gloucester died without any legitimate heirs, though his wife was apparently pregnant. This led to a slightly awkward wait, while his sisters, the presumptive heirs, one assumes desperately hoped that the pregnancy would fail. When no baby turned up, either because of trickery on the part of the wife or miscarriage, the Earl's three sisters each inherited a chunk of the rich estate. All of them were married to men high up in the king's regard, but the elder sister, Eleanor, was married to the most favoured, Hugh Dispenser the Younger, but who I will just call Dispenser for ease. Hugh Dispenser was the son of Hugh Dispenser, the Earl of Winchester, who was one of Edward's most stalwart allies. The younger Dispenser was born in around 12, 
1286, and followed the traditional path of the son of an earl. He took on various duties in his father's castles and was given an education in how to run an earldom and in how to fight. He was knighted in 1306 and married to Eleanor the same year. He was not a rich man, and so his wife, suddenly and unexpectedly gaining the prized pieces of the inheritance of the great Earl of Gloucester, suddenly propelled him into the limelight. Indeed, he would not rest until he had taken the whole of the inheritance, such was the greed and ambition of Dispenser. By 1318, Dispenser had risen in the king's royal household to the position of royal chamberlain, as well as a seat on the king's council, the same position that Piers Gaveston had occupied. But Dispenser was a very different and altogether more menacing beast than Gaveston had been. Edward was cultivating an alternate power base, attempting to subvert the influence of the men loyal to Lancaster, and so Dispenser and his associates offered an opportunity to do just that. Yet, his relationship with Dispenser was more than just that. It was something altogether more intense. So, what was a royal chamberlain? Well, his main job was to be the gatekeeper to the king. He controlled who got to spend time with him and who did not. This was a hugely influential position, especially if you were willing to trade favours for money, and especially so if you earned the unquestioning support of the king. There are fewer suspicions of homosexuality with regard to the relationship between Edward and Dispenser, but there is no doubt that the king was in the thrall of the young noble. Dispenser immediately began to accrue more land, wealth and power for himself, with no regard to whose toes he stood on to get them. He set his eyes on the Lordship of Gower in southern Wales, but he had no real right to it. In a protracted legal dispute, he lost the case, but he persuaded the king to intervene and overrule the court. This was a huge demonstration of his influence over Edward, as this move was patently illegal and mightily ticked off John Mowbray, the man who really should have got the lordship. He started to amass followers, including Roger Mortimer, yes, that Roger Mortimer, a major landholder in Wales and Ireland, and both the recently flipped Earl of Hereford and, of course, Lancaster. They raised their flag in rebellion and marched on London. And who was the one to bring both sides to the table? Why, Isabella, of course, who I think might be the only sensible person in this entire story. She persuaded the king that he needed to deal, and came up with a way to do it in such a way that he could save face. In front of the whole court, she prostrated herself in front of Edward, begging him to agree to terms. This was some classic quality queening, using the power of public queenly intercession to engineer the right result, and giving Edward an out. The king begrudgingly agreed, and Dispenser was banished from England, though not for long. He would spend the next few months roaming the channel like a pirate, seizing merchant ships and profiting from their cargo. Isabella was then sent on royal business, and, on the premise of going on pilgrimage to Canterbury, set off for Leeds Castle, which, for clarity, is near Dover, and thus nowhere near Leeds, because of, you know, reasons. The owner of the castle, Bartholomew Bartholomew Badelsmere was thought to be disloyal, and so Edward thought that he could pick him off in advance of another attack on Lancaster. Badelsmere was not at home, and had left his wife in charge with strict instructions not to admit anyone. This meant that on a cold, wet night, Isabella was left outside. She was furious, both at this flagrant disregard for her royal authority, and, you know, for being left outside in the wet and cold. She ordered her men to force their way in, and in the ensuing fight, six of her men lay dead. 
Now whether this situation was engineered or not, the fact is that an English noble had attacked the party of the Queen. This was treason and could not go unpunished. The King sent a full army to take the castle and it quickly submitted, and Badlesmere's wife threw herself on the mercy of Edward and Isabella. This was a great opportunity for Edward to show his mercy and be kingly, but he decided to do, you know, the other thing. Twelve of the defenders were hung from the walls, and Badlesmere's family were sent to the tower. This was pretty summary and harsh, but it was the harbinger of things to come. Badlesmere himself had gathered a few followers, including Mortimer, Hereford, and eventually Lancaster too. Triumphant, Edward saw an opportunity to finally avenge the murder of his beloved Gaveston, and went for the jugular. He exploited the insult to his popular queen to the fullest extent, and sent his armies up north to settle the dispute once and for all. He defeated the Mortimers at Shrewsbury, imprisoning them in the tower, and then headed up to Northumbria, where Lancaster was based. The two armies met at the Battle of Burr Bridge outside York, and the Earl of Hereford was killed in action, and Lancaster himself was forced to surrender, and was executed at Pontefract, in a manner not dissimilar to the way that he had killed Gaveston. Edward's revenge was complete. This was a momentous moment, not since the conquest had an English noble been executed as a traitor, and it was not just Lancaster who died. Scores of knights and squires joined him in the gallows. Edward was turning into a tyrant, and the kingdom was put on notice. The Spencer, who had joined Edward on his campaign, was created the Earl of Winchester, further cementing his power. He joined Edward on his campaign of revenge, and many of Dispenser's enemies suddenly found themselves deprived of their lands, titles, or even their heads. His target were his long-term enemies, the Mortimers, but Isabella interceded on their behalf, as she saw that they had been punished enough, and managed to persuade Edward to save their lives, though they were treated barely better than common criminals and kept locked up. A break from all of this Kill Bill-style revenge the next year came, when Robert Bruce decided to invade, his truce with Edward having expired. Isabella and Edward were near the border at the time, but in separate castles. On hearing about the invasion, Edward did the noble and kingly thing and immediately fled south of Dispenser, leaving his baggage, money and wife in the path of the invading Scots. He did send some men to protect her, but Isabella knew that they would not arrive in time. She was understandably furious, suspecting that Dispenser persuaded the king to leave her behind, knowing that if she was captured or even killed then his last obstacle to complete control over Edward would be removed. She took matters into her own hands and engineered an escape from the besieged castle and fled by ship down south in the midst of a furious North Sea storm. Two of her ladies-in-waiting died on the trip, and so did her respect and loyalty to her husband. She had been a loyal wife for nearly 15 years, but Edward had made it clear that his loyalties lay elsewhere. Now... In 1322, Isabella's journey towards rebellion and power began. Next time, we will start Isabella down that road, see her begin her infamous affair with Roger Mortimer, and, finally, see her do something that no other queen had ever done. Overthrow her husband and rule. The 
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 